Welcome back to the Sharp End Podcast, a podcast aimed to minimize future incidents by way of storytelling. Real people sharing real stories. I got this interview while on a six-day break from working safety for a TV show. I was between shoot locations. I had just flown home to Anchorage, Alaska from three weeks in New Mexico, and I was staying at my sister Crystal's house. I did this interview in a closet in her guest bedroom, which is where she stores her paper towels and toilet paper. I was literally standing in the closet staring at paper products for an hour while talking to four people through a computer screen. Right now, I'm up editing this episode at 2 a.m. on summer solstice. I have to squeeze in time to edit between working safety on the third episode of this TV show. So this episode was edited at the Old Tusitna Lodge off the Denali Highway, surrounded by a massive expanse of mountains like Baldy, Mount Gate, Mount Deborah, Hess, Hayes, and even the Tusitna Glacier winding out of the eastern Alaska range into the distance. I had lakes to swim in and wild animals to be inspired by. Thanks to Cody and Paige for their hospitality. So if you hear barking in the background during the edit, it's because the 53 sled dogs outside won't stop barking. Hey, make sure to listen in to the end of this episode so you can learn how you can win a partner level American Alpine Club membership, something all of us backcountry folk really need. Today's episode has been sponsored by the Garmin InReach Mini Satellite Communicator. As we've discovered on the show, and even from listening to this episode, adventuring can be a dangerous endeavor. With the Garmin InReach Mini, there's great comfort in knowing that home is a button press away with global two-way messaging, SOS alerts, and more. The communicator's lightweight, compact design makes it an easy choice to bring along on your next expedition. Explore confidently with Garmin. During the COVID days on August 5th, 2020, Four very experienced women who love mountaineering set out to climb Mount Ray in Alberta, Canada. On the descent, one of the four of these women slipped on hard-packed snow and couldn't get purchased with her ice axe to self-arrest. She slipped and tumbled and rolled and ultimately pressed the SOS button on her Garmin inReach. In this episode, I talked to two of the women who were there, one of the search and rescue personnel who dangled out of the helicopter, and the pilot who flew the A-Star helicopter. Listen in to hear all four perspectives from this exciting rescue. Enjoy. My name is Vi Pickering, and um, I am an investigator for the Alberta Securities Commission, and I'm an avid hiker and um, climber and uh, mountain person, and have been involved in the mountains here in uh, Alberta and our Rocky Mountains in Canada for, um, I'd say, about 20 years. Yeah, and um, I've known Vi since 2008. Uh, I've been in the mountains um, since uh, probably 94, 95. Um, Avid scrambler, mountaineering, some climbing. Um, Yeah, my name is Diane Casarella, by the way. yeah, I just work at a chiropractic clinic, and I put a lot of miles and time on my car running out west. Yeah, hi, it's Jeremy McKenzie. I'm a, a mountain guide, and I work as a public safety specialist with uh, Kananaskis Public Safety. We're an agency of uh, the government of Alberta with Alberta Parks, and I happen to be one of the rescuers that was on scene uh, with by. Hi, my name is uh, Todd Cooper. I'm the uh base manager here in Canmore for Alpine Helicopters, as well as uh, one of the rescue pilots. There's uh, four of us here that perform rescues, and we have uh, uh, aircraft on standby uh, all daylight hours, 365 days a year. And I was also the pilot flying 
during uh, Lai's accident. And and Todd, what type of um, helicopter were you flying? It's a Bell 407. Okay. Well, thanks for everybody. Um, thanks so much, everybody, for being on the show with me today. It's super exciting to have all four of you here. I've never done a show with four people on it. Um, it's going to be really fun to have everybody's perspective. So, Vi, why don't you go ahead and start us out? Um, paint the picture of where you were in the world, so, you know, Canada specifically, and um, and then what you were out doing, and then you could just go ahead and dive right into the story. Great. Yes. So, um, I had uh, some time off in the summer. Uh, August uh, 2020, COVID uh, days uh, sent us to the mountains a lot just to get out of town and out of our confines with uh, being isolated. And my friend Diane, who's going to partake as well and provide her perspective, uh, she and I had planned to get out for a couple of days off that I had, and she had off uh, the beginning of August. And August of 2020? 2020, yes. And so we did a few emails back and forth. Diane and I have gone out um, often over the years, and uh, she suggested Mount Ray. And uh, although she's done the mountain before, she said, uh, why don't we try, you know, go for that mountain. You haven't done it before. And I said, uh, sounds great. And Mount Ray is located in Kananaskis uh, Provincial Park in Alberta, Canada. And uh, it's right next door to Banff National Park. The height of Mount Ray is 3,218 meters. I uh, double checked it, looked it up, and that would equate for our American um, mountaineers as uh, just over 10,000 feet. So Diane um, and I had set a date, August 5th, that we would go up Mount Ray. And because of COVID uh, issues, we were basically kind of all driving on our own. So um, I met them at the uh, trailhead with uh, my car and she had uh, suggested inviting a couple of other people that we do hike with or have hiked with in the past. Um, I lost touch with uh, these other two ladies, and uh, it was nice to connect again. We thought we'd have kind of a homecoming and renew uh, appointment acquaintances and uh, just get a little bit of a, a catch-up on what everybody's lives were. Um, and both the ladies are uh, grandmothers, so we were going to catch up on kids and family and all kinds of things. So we met at the trailhead at about nine and the trailhead is at Highwood Pass, a very, um, um, one of the high points in the Kananaskis area, driving wise and beautiful area. It was a beautiful sunny day, very hot, uh, warm, perfect day to be out. We had all checked the route of Mount Ray, where we wanted to go. Um, and there was some reports on the snow conditions on the call. And uh, some people had said the snow was helpful coming down. Um, and others uh, had uh, posted various things about being able to get around the snow. So we were hopeful that we would kind of take the rock um, all the way up uh, away from the snow 
and possibly consider the snow on the way down. So we, we got to the call and um, uh, the four of us kind of looked at two options. We had an option to go left on a, a scramble route, um, scree slope, or we could take the ridge. And I, I had looked at the ridge uh, locations and viewed them online to figure out um, how to go up the ridge, what kind of, uh, what would the rock look like? And so we kind of came along, uh, had a big discussion about where we want to go. And we all thought we'd take a little bit more of the interesting way up. And so we started up this ridge and there was a, a little bit of a chute or a chimney that we were supposed to go up. And uh, we kind of looked around for the chimney and decided, uh, you know, the one we were looking at must be the one and uh, I looked up and saw at the top there was um, a chalk stone at the top and felt oh I remember seeing that in the pictures uh, posted on the proper route that must be it so we started up and halfway up this uh, chimney we realized this was definitely way above five uh, a low level five scramble and uh, realized that uh, this was something we probably really should have a rope on but we had already committed and we're halfway up this uh, uh, <laughs> chimney <laughs> and when we looked down we went well we're not going down this we have no other choice but to go up and off we went made it up to the top and thought we had no idea if we were going to be able to get around the ridge because we didn't know if it cliffed out or um, if we were going to have to find another way down but we managed to realize that we could kind of skirt a couple of cliff bands, made it along the ridge, and then um, uh, uh, followed the, the ridge right to the top, which um, there was a few exposed areas. It's not a, it's not an, uh, I wouldn't call it a uh, easy, there's lots of exposure, some hands-on stuff, so I, I call it difficult. There was um, on that ridge quite a few spots that you could have had a serious injury if you fell off. So, um, and we all we all enjoy a little bit of exposure. We're all four ladies um, uh, in our 60s. You realize that we we like this kind of stuff and gives us a little bit of rush and uh, thought we were really successful getting to the top, thought it was great. So at the top, I uh, phoned my husband and said, hey, you know, we made it to the top, you know, I'll be home soon. I was planning that evening to pack up and go to another peak the next day on the Columbia ice fields, just uh, 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 towards Jasper area in uh, Banff National Park to climb another peak uh, the next uh, two days from uh, August 5th to uh, meet another friend. And um, and actually it was on my birthday, uh, August 8th, that we were gonna climb uh, Mount Wilcox, which is on Columbia Ice Fields. Uh, so I was had lots of things on my mind. I was gonna get ready to pack. So um, it, we're, we weren't gonna dawdle too long on the top. So uh, we, started coming down and one other person in our party she found a, a good area to get on the snow she had got on the snow 
a little higher up from where I was going to attempt to get on the snow. So she was coming down the snow and I thought, well, she looks like she she's in a good spot. And that snow looks a lot better than the ball bearings and the slab that I'm going to have to come down on the rock. So we had stuck to the rock kind of partway down from the colon. And I thought, I'm going to, I'm just going to try the snow because it's much easier. So I took a step and um, thought, hmm, that's a bit icy, but I'm sure it's softened now with the sun. I'm, if I take two more steps, it should be fine. So I took another step. And just as I took that step, I realized this is too icy. And I, I should turn around. And just as I that thought went through my head, I uh, started to slip. And I had my ice axe in my hand and I put, put it into the snow. And I was still picking up quite a bit of speed. And as I was going down, I realized I, I need to put way more power into this. I had a, a had a, and still do have a little bit of a shoulder injury, so it, it's not as strong as I'd like it to be. So I knew I got to put my whole body into this. And just as I was going to do that, I came to, I didn't realize this, um, and Diane can speak about this, but I uh, didn't realize that the snow ended far sooner than I anticipated and I hit rock before I could dig that uh, ice axe in. About and how long were you sliding before you hit rock? I, and Diane probably could answer that, but the total they said I fell was about 80 meters, which is uh, in uh, feet would be about 262 feet. So yeah. I, and, and when you were sliding, you're just like unable to just arrest and stop the fall because it was just so slippery and icy. It, I had good snow. It's just my ice axe wasn't stopping me. And I think it's the whole once you get momentum going, you have to put far more force into it. And I just didn't have enough time to put the force in to stop myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and my ice axe hit rock. I thought in my mind, I thought I had hit a lone rock in the snow. And when that happened, um, and I think that by that point uh, I'm not sure how much I had fallen but uh, it or slid it my ice axe went completely out of my hand and then I hit rock and I started to do uh, somersaults and I I don't even know how many I, I felt like I had done three or four somersaults and uh, when I got to, I did these flips and just came to a stop. Um, and I, I thought there was maybe a, maybe another 200 or 300 meters to the bottom of the call. Um, I could have carried on going, but I stopped. And I was sitting up when I stopped. And I, I took a moment and I, I one of the big things I, I thought, well, did I break a leg? Did I break my arms? 
and I was lacerated everywhere. I was bleeding, um, but I thought I can still feel my legs. I can still feel my arms, so uh, I'm, I must be good. Um, I pulled my pack off. I was able to pull my pack off my back. Um, I took my helmet off and I pushed the inReach, um, the SOS right away because I thought there's no way uh, I, I could walk down. Um, I had a fleeting moment that I thought, well, if I don't have anything broken, I probably could walk. And, but then I realized I, I just could not get up with all my lacerations. It, it just hurt everywhere. So I pushed the button. And meanwhile, um, Diane was um, way above. She got to me first. Um, the other two ladies uh, came down and, and assisted. And um, I, uh, I sat there for a moment and uh, real, kind of did an assessment and I, I was kind of leaning over and I, I kind of stretched up to, to try and lean back a little bit. And the minute I did that, I realized there was something seriously wrong with my neck. And I'll, I'll defer to um, Diane on her perspective of the accident and, and perhaps Jeremy and Todd. And then I can just summarize at the end what, what ended up breaking and, uh, and the perspective after uh, um, I was uh, finally at the hospital. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks bye, so much for sharing. And yeah, Diane, why don't you go ahead and step in here and share a little bit about your perspective. Once you got, once you witnessed the fall, and then once you, you know, you're making your way to Vi, start from there. So we're at the top of the cold. The three girls go, oh, we're going to go out on the snow. And I thought, there's no way I'm going on the snow. Um, I didn't have any teeth to put on my feet, you know, no spikes and no crampons. Anyway, so they went for it. Um, yeah, and it is, as Vi said, she started slipping. And uh, I, man, as soon as I saw that, my heart just uh, leaped because um, she picked up speed really fast. I still see it in my head. And, and she could not pull that axe down right under her chest. She was trying to arrest, but that shoulder made it so... She was already flying, and the snow went all the way down to the bottom of the gully, but she was going at an angle. And I hollered, rock, 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 as loud as I could, but I knew she couldn't hear me. And that axe we saw later, as I was rushing down to her, actually drove through the ice into that softer ice, hit rock, and then it popped her body. She catapulted backwards. I can't tell you how many somersaults she did. Her body was in a somersault position. It was like watching an exercise ball bounce down the rock band. And why she stopped, I will never know. And not only did she stop, she stopped facing forward down the gully and in a sitting position, which considering her neck injury was probably the best thing she could have done. Um... It makes no sense that she stopped. It was a very steep gully. Um, so then I tried to get down the rock as fast as I could. It's extremely loose stuff and ball bearing. Um, fortunately, scrambling a lot of years helped. I was concerned she'd taken her helmet off already. 
So I was really careful getting down to her. Uh, I grabbed her poles uh, where they fell, and I saw how the axe was jammed down into the ice and rock. And I asked one of my other friends to grab her axe because my hands were full already. And uh, I got down to her and did a quick assessment of what was happening. She'd already got the inReach out. And interestingly, one of the other girls up high had just dialed 911 on her phone. And she got a connection as well. So I found that really interesting because we were below the edge of the... um, the, the area there where I, I don't understand how she got connection, but maybe 911 goes directly to satellite. Yeah, so then uh, I put my coat around her. We realized there's no way she could even lay down, and I didn't want her going into shock. And um, one of the other girls came down, and she did the texting with um, the emergency services, and the guys flew in on the helicopter. And uh, saw her leg was really bleeding quite a bit, but I didn't think that was serious enough to even fool around with that. It was mostly just trying to keep her still, give her some water, and wait for the helicopter. Okay, wow. So you witnessed that whole thing, and then you get you get yeah. down to her, and you're trying to keep her calm, keep her warm. Um, did you did you do any more addressing of any of her, you know, lacerations Mm-mm. or bleeds, or did you just sort of really focus on keeping her calm yeah, and warm? Yeah, keeping her still and calm and warm, giving her water, um, mm-hmm. you know, after an adrenaline rush, that's not a bad idea. Um, but she was in shock and, uh, we didn't want that to become a bigger issue, but, but she was, she was right. conscious and lucid. She was fine that way. So it was amazing. Well, so the, so, so then the helicopter flies in and does, you know, Jeremy or Todd, you want to step in here to see what happens next? Yeah, sure. Todd, just jump in too. Um, but to, we we originally received the the emergency notification in two ways because of the I think as Diane just said there was a nine one one call placed as well as the in reach device. Um, so it was kind of nice to have a bit of extra info. So we basically knew right away that there was a, um, a climber that had fallen down a snow slope, and we had coordinates, and we're also quite familiar with the the location. So. Well, and Jeremy, really quick, so because yeah. there was a 911 call, can we just go over that real quick, you know, so when someone doesn't have cell phone service on their phone and they still dial 911, does that call go through? No, in, in large parts of our area, so Kananaskis country being, uh, you know, western Alberta, bordering up against the Continental Divide and and parts of Banff National Park and so on, uh, a large portion of our area doesn't have cell phone service. So it's becoming more important. And, and actually quite common nowadays for people to have devices like the inReach or the spot. And uh, that can help us get the location a lot faster. And in some cases help us get activated a lot sooner. And, you know, in the old days, people would have to leave the party on scene and then send somebody out to get to a pay phone or what have you. So it's a, it's a huge difference and it, it's a big help to us, um, particularly the GPS coordinates. In a lot of cases, we don't really need much more info if we know there's a party in distress at a certain gps coordinate we can usually surmise what the incident is if it's you know if it's a if it's placed on a water body then we know it's probably a water event if it's placed on a peak you know near a known climbing route we know it's probably a climbing event etc so um yeah so we kind of did have both the the inreach device goes through a call center in houston and then that goes to the local rcmp 
which then goes to our dispatch. So there's a little bit of a lag there. Um, whereas the 911 call goes to a call center in Calgary and then comes to our dispatch. So it's just a little bit faster. But as I recall, but only if you have service though. Yeah, that's right. So we would have gotten the call maybe five or 10 minutes later if there was no cell service. Um, but because there was both happening, we actually were able to determine that uh, this was probably the same incident and we kind of knew where we were heading right away. So that, that was huge. Yeah, it uh, made no sense that uh, our friend Esther put in a 911 call and she actually got through. I'm still trying to figure that one out. So we, because we, yeah, we, she's probably, we were probably, below the call, you know, into the bowl a little bit. So yeah, sure. It was just probably just high enough to get over the ridge to, to see one of the Must towers have. in Calgary somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, so then our process is we, we uh, get all the resources heading in the right direction. So what that means for us is that our dispatch center will ask one of the, uh, one or more of the local conservation officers who are also part of our rescue team to, to head towards the scene and establish a staging. Um, they'll notify the, the specialists, which uh, myself and one other specialist went over to the hangar and met up with Todd and start loading up the, the gear. And then um, obviously have to get ambulances on the way and that sort of stuff. So, you know, typically for us, a pretty good response time would be about an hour from the call placement to when we're overhead. Depends on, you know, all kinds of things like weather and and where the incident is and so on. But I think if I recall correctly, that's about what we were is approximately an hour to get overhead. And then, um, you know, it's... You kind of get a sense. We could see on the approach. Um, I'm pretty sure it was Todd that noticed where the party was because they weren't easily visible uh, as they were off the snow, and the the rock tends to blend in all kinds of colors and so on. So, um, you know, certainly bright colors show up easily, but it, it seems to me in this case it was a little bit more difficult to see exactly where they were, even though we had precise coordinates. Um, but I think it was Todd that saw the party down below the snow. And then we immediately could see that there was a, you know, an area in the snow where the a person had slid and then gone into the rocks as Vi had mentioned and, and then had tumbled quite a ways down the rocks. So we were anticipating, um, some significant tra trauma and that was sort of confirmed, um, as we hovered over the location you can kind of just get a sense, you know, look at the at the subject or the patient or the party and you get a sense of like, oh, that doesn't look very good. Just either you see uh, some blood or you see some angulated bones or you see uh, just the posture of, of the person. And that was the case in this one. We, we could sort of tell by the, the snow slope followed by the rock slope followed by uh, the position of the patient and so on um, that this was probably pretty serious. So we, if I recall correctly, Todd, uh, we went up, found a place really close by to do our staging because we have to we have to land and switch over to a long line rescue. We, we don't uh, have a winch where we just step out the side of the door and go down. Um, yeah, I, I'm. Uh, for me personally, it, the system's a little bit different than Jeremy. Their dispatch collects all the information and then uh, they page us uh, directly, and then we uh, we launch from there. That particular day, we were actually um, is one we had a rather busy summer um, after the the COVID lockdown was released a bit. You know, um, one aircraft that day was already uh, down in Waterton, 
performing a rescue. So I actually wasn't on call that day, but I was at the hangar and able to help out with a second helicopter. So uh, fortunate for that. Uh, when we got overhead, I could see Vi. She was sitting up still. And uh, like Jeremy was saying, it was fairly obvious that um, the injuries were significant. So there's a, a meadow just down below that slope um, where we landed and then uh, hooked the long line up. So as Jeremy was saying, it's not, uh, it's not a winch system. So we have to land and, and actually physically attach the rope. So it's it's a boost rescue system. It's made in Canada, and it's uh, basically a 100-foot fixed line that hangs below the helicopter. And uh, We attach that, and then the guys get on the end of that rope, and then uh, I take them into the accident scene. Yeah, so Todd put uh, two of us in there. It was myself and Matt. Um, we have a, a trauma kit with us, and we have um, a vacuum mattress, which is a, is a moldable backboard, um, all kinds of, of medical supplies and so on, and, and we were able to get on seen pretty quickly after uh we were we located them and yeah one thing i really remember about this uh, as todd said you know it's it's busy we've been really busy the last couple of years here and we see a lot of things and a lot of people and i distinctly remember vi being well what's the right word vi direct with how we were going to treat her because she knew something was wrong. <laughs> yeah, she <laughs> and, knows, right? Yeah. She's the patient. She's the patient, but she was really, really good about that because she identified really quickly that there's something very wrong with my neck and you guys need to be careful. And that was, that was great. I mean, it was also kind of, kind of funny in a way because we're, we could tell this was an experienced party when you, you know, when you land beside somebody and you see helmets and ice axes and, and well-worn boots and packs and stuff. That's not their first time in the Hills. Um, and so, you know, here's this, this old mountaineering bird that's telling us how to do our job, but, uh, we were actually quite thankful for that, uh, because it, it does help, you know, we, we have to do our assessments of course, and, and manage what we see, but if someone can tell that something's really wrong and, and, uh, they're concerned about in the, in this case, a, a spinal injury, um, then that just helps us do our job too. And so Matt and I were very aware of that very early and sort of, approach the mission with that in mind. Um, and as you know, we, we have to make a little bit of a platform there. It was all kind of uh, larger talus. Like it's, you know, scree, scree and talus slopes kind of have different character. This was the one of those slopes that had kind of like softball sized talus. And so we were digging using ice axes to dig out a platform in the dirt and the rock and, and then um, putting on a, sea collar and trying to figure out a way to to smoothly move by into a lane position um to get her strapped in properly so that we minimized any movement um you know our pretty common um, uh, and from our medical directors we we've learned over time that you know it's it's more difficult to cause a, 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 like an, an issue with a, a spinal injury after the fact like if it didn't happen on the original mechanism of injury, it's, it's sort of unlikely that you're going to create an additional injury by moving that patient. But notwithstanding, we wanted to be super careful, um, uh, as we are with all spine patients. But when the, when the, when the patient herself knows that something's wrong, um, then it sort of amplified that in, in our assessment and as well as our packaging and so on. So we didn't do too much else to you, Vi, I don't believe. I think we looked at a couple of the scrapes and bruises and then we got your vitals and relayed that down to the EMS crews and uh, packaged you and moved you out. I think the only um, 
you put something on my finger, and I think that was reading oh, too. what the oxygen level in my blood. Yeah, it's a it's a uh, SpO2 monitor, so it's a it measures the saturation of oxygen in your blood as well as gives us a uh, um, a heart rate. So it's just a quick way of uh, of dealing with that. And what I remember too on that is that your vitals were quite stable, which was also good. But we know you'd or we knew that you'd uh, had a significant traumatic event and. We also didn't know whether you possibly had other internal injuries to, to deal with. So seeing that your vitals were stable was positive because that meant that it was probably a little bit less likely that you had any internal injuries. It's also a little bit less likely that you suffered any spinal cord damage because you wouldn't you wouldn't be in neurogenic shock then. Um, but we still were really cautious with how we moved you. I remember you saying, I won't be able to help you when we're in the air. And I had this overwhelming sense of panic um, as we were taking off because I thought, I think I was cocooned, didn't see anything. And I thought, oh man, what if something happens and he can't help me? And I, um, I think it, it's just the fact that you put it in my head and I, I just thought I got this sense of claustrophobia, fear, and uh, I had to almost mentally calm myself down. Okay, well, he's not that far away, and uh, it should only take a couple minutes, and uh, maybe you can tell him how long, uh, maybe Todd can say how long it took and what that is like when you drop me off, because uh, everybody said I had a view, but I said I didn't have a view at all. Well, as I remembered, it, it took longer to... Uh to get by packaged up and ready to go than the flight was to, to get her down to EMS. I think it was, you know, at the most five minutes, but probably even less than that from the time uh, you guys got on the rope till you were down at EMS was, you know, three or four minutes, not too, it wasn't a long flight for us here. It's uh, it's about 75% of the time is uh, if anything's going to be challenging, it's the wind for us. I remember that day being fairly warm up high. So, uh, Helicopters don't, or any aircraft for that matter, the, the higher and the hotter you get, the, the less performance you have. Um, it wasn't an issue, but it was warm that day. And uh, generally, if we are going to battle something, it's the wind. So the wind can be challenging. Um, that day, it wasn't too bad. So uh, as far as getting the guys in and, and getting everyone out, it, it, uh, it wasn't an overly challenging uh, mission for myself. But Generally, what we do when we get on scene, as we as we did, is just do a power check and see uh, the amount of power available that the helicopter has, and make sure everything's going to work. And then we go down and we and we remove a lot of the gear that's in inside the aircraft uh, just to lighten it up. So when I went and got Matt, we had to go back and then uh, just to to the staging area and just collect all that gear before we could come grab Jer for the ride home. I just, I just remember Jeremy bringing a neck, neck brace. Uh, Jeremy, did you have that neck brace on hand when you put it on me? Yeah, when we always have in our trauma kit, we have uh, neck braces as well as in, um, we have a big haul bag, which is, that's where we have the uh, vacuum mattress and the, what we call the Bowman bag, uh, which is a, the, the actual canvas bag that we put the patients in to fly them in a more horizontal fashion. So both of those pieces of, a, of kit have a, a neck brace. And then um, 
we also were anticipating that just when we did the power check early on in the in the mission. It's like, well, that's that's a traumatic injury with a significant fall, so we definitely have to have one of those. So, so Vi, do you remember once you get uh, once you got uh, brought down to EMS? Do you remember what happened from there? You get an ambulance and then they take you off to the hospital. Okay, so they when I got to the ambulance, the ground ambulance, they said reported to me that they were uh, had put Stars Air Ambulance, which is a an ambulance that would helicopter me from from the ground ambulance to the hospital directly. Um, it was on standby, and they were just checking to see if that ambulance was going to. The other helicopter was going to come and get me to take me to the hospital. But because they were occupied and I was fairly stable, all my vitals were pretty good, they decided to take me by ground ambulance to the hospital. And that was about an hour and a half drive. And I arrived then. So the accident happened about 2.40 and the helicopter, um, Jeremy and Todd got me off the mountain about an hour later. And so I arrived at the hospital about six o'clock and they put me right through into a merge and I got an arm, uh, an MRI right away. And uh, the doctor, um, I, I, I was very concerned about my neck because it, it just felt like jello. Um, if I, if I kind of leaned back a a little ways, it it just was so unstable. I knew there was something seriously wrong. So I told this to the eMERGE doctor and right after the MRI was done, he came into the room and he said, no wonder you, um, felt your neck was like jello. You broke it. And I went, oh, that, it just shocked me. I thought that's a, that's a really harsh way to say you're, you know, you're, you've got an injury. I thought, you know, usually they would say, oh, you fractured something or use something less harsh, but he just came right out and said, you broke your neck. And I went, oh, and they, they said they wanted to decide, or they needed to have a surgeon decide if they were going to either fuse it, fuse or operate, um, which was my C2 was broken and I had a uh, crack on an L2, a lower part part of my back and uh, broken fingers, two broken fingers. So out of all of the things that happened to me, lacerations that were stitched um, and I had bruising everywhere, but surprisingly no internal injuries and but of course, the broken neck, which was pretty serious. So they were trying to decide if they were going to operate on me and fuse my uh, neck. And uh, they needed to assess it. And because I was fairly stable, they said they were going to wait overnight. So so I basically stayed in a merge um, overnight on a gurney waiting to find out what the doctors were going to do with my neck injury. And so by seven o'clock, the surgeon um, came in and said, um, you, you're a good candidate for a halo. 
um, rather than getting uh, surgery. And so within about an hour, I had a halo on my head, which is, um, it consists of a bar, four bars that are attached to a vest um, that I was secured um, with Velcro all around my, um, my body. And then a metal uh, ring on the top that attaches to the four bars with um, pins or drill holes that go into the skull. So I had four of those in the skull and uh, four bars that would um, hold my neck in place um, so it would heal. So I got out on my birthday and it was interesting to try and manage to move around with a halo because it makes you so much wider. And I could had trouble getting into vehicles and would bump into things. And, um, and then sleeping uh, with a halo, with, it was almost impossible. You had to sleep sitting up. So I had that on for three months and um, then went into what they call an Aspen collar. Um, that went around my neck for probably another three months. So at this point, I'm on the road to recovery, still have physio, but it's at least I have movement, and that was what the blessing was about having a halo. And the interesting thing about a C2 uh, injury is, obviously, if I'd had a spinal injury or it had affected my spine uh it potentially uh i would have either been paralyzed and uh possibly uh, i mean that is where your oxygen is and I, I possibly would have died for sure and uh the doctor even came in and after i had the halo on and he said uh, the surgeon said i i don't have too many patients with a broken neck that don't have a spinal injury. You're, you're, you're an oddity. So it was really very miraculous. And I know, you know, doing some reflection, I find um, just, a, just some of the takeaways and learnings for me was, um, you know, first of all, wearing a helmet, like, don't ever take it off. And <laughs> that saved my life. I would have certainly died from uh, concussion because uh, I hit my head so many times. My helmet certainly was destroyed. And, you know, when you often are on ice or snow, you think I'm not going to waste my time putting my crampons on or putting something on. No, take the time to do that. And perhaps we could have maybe chatted a bit about who was going where on the call, um, deciding together, although we were all very strong scramblers and I, I think we all in our mind would have made our own decision where to go. And um, I found too, uh, my friend was, she was trying to uh, use the app when and she was communicating. And I realized I should have put 
thinking back, I should have put directions, like a, a little card that said, how does the inReach work? And, and what my password is to my phone, because the phone has the EarthMate on it where uh, they could communicate with my husband and the call center. And, and, and if I had been unconscious, there's no way they would have been able to figure out how to do that. Um, I, think, I think the friend who was doing the texting asked me at least 10 times what the password was to my phone. And I, I, if I had not been conscious, uh, they wouldn't have been able to communicate what was happening. And the other thing I found too, when she was, when I read the text messages, um, and Todd maybe could speak to this, but she, <laughs> she made a text to the call center and said, the helicopter came and the helicopter went, where is the helicopter? And, uh, I realized, well, uh, Todd had to fly the helicopter somewhere to set up the long line. And oftentimes people don't realize that the helicopter has to come in and then go. Um, and because you could tell she was in her text message when I read it later, she was pretty anxious. Like, why in the heck did he leave? And then, and then uh, she feared he wasn't coming back. We were all in a controlled panic. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, usually, you, you know, I mean, talk and speak to this, right? But helis usually have to scout the area and figure out where they can land, where it's safe to land. Um, well, Diane, did, did you have any learnings through this um, event? You know, when you asked me to come up with five lessons, I thought, man, I learned one. I, I already have a tremendous respect for snow travel, um, particularly when I'm scrambling because a lot of times the snow you run into and, um, in those summer months, you, you really want to test it. You don't necessarily want to be out on it if you have another option. It is a quick way down. And so it's a fun option if um, the angle's good and you have the equipment. If you don't have the equipment and you don't have the know-how to use an axe or walk in crampons, take the rock. <laughs> Please, just take mm -hmm. the rock. There was a guy who passed us on the way down, and on his social media, he was kind of bragging later in the day how, yeah, and I went down the snow from the top of the call into the bowl. This guy had on soft shoes. He had poles. He had no helmet. He had no axe. He got down that snow probably because he was farther into what had been in shade more. So there was a little more purchase for his foot. But, um, man, he got lucky. He got really lucky. And the other thing, uh, Vi's helmet, I've known her a long time. It's the same helmet since 2008. It's probably older than that. The, uh, the round um, insets that you put your, your headlamp into had popped out. And uh, that helmet was destroyed. So that helmet had compressed enough that it had popped those insets out. Those were just left up in the rocks somewhere. So kudos to Black Diamond. Um, their old helmet saved her life, for sure. Yeah. And InReach, a really worthy investment. Actually, this weekend, I'm taking a course out in Canmore <laughs> so that I can get on a GPS system. I'm old school with a compass and map, which is good, but uh, time for a GPS system as well. Um, yeah, in group, dy group dynamics, 
that day was the first time the four of us had been together to do anything in a very long time. And I think, I know I felt hesitant to say anything when the girls were talking about going out in the snow. I thought, you know, there's about a hundred years of experience between the four of us here. And I'm not going to be the one to speak up and say, you know, you guys, I wouldn't go out in the snow. I figured they can make their choice. You know, they've got the experience. But that's group dynamics. And if we'd spent more time together, maybe I would have felt more willing to speak up. But um, I didn't. Mm. So. Well, thanks for sharing those learnings, Diane. Um, Vi, did you have any additional learnings you wanted to leave the listeners with? And and then Jeremy and Todd as well. Um, One final thought I really had on a learning, and it's part of the healing process. I think, and this is maybe not for everyone, but I found after I had my halo off and I was starting to heal after a major injury, I I just felt it was something I needed to do, and that was to to go back to Jeremy, Todd, to Mountain Rescue, um, to just say thank you and, and to let them know I'm okay, uh, that I, you know, I made it and what my injuries were. Part of it was a really a, a, a mental stepping stone for me because as we all know in the mountain community, you start heading back out to the mountains, you do the stuff you want, you have a bit of PTSD. We all do. I, I don't know if anyone after a, a serious injury can say, I can just go and do whatever it is I want to. I think we all have to go through a journey of getting back at it and facing some of the fears we have from that incident because you have flashbacks. Uh, I know I went hiking about a month ago and I had a snow slope I was looking down on and I, I had this moment of panic that I had to work through. And I think along that journey, it's to go back to do a bit of debrief with your friends and also with the mountain rescue, the people who are involved to say, send a card. So I went back to the, to the center sent a note, sent an email, said, thank you. I'm on my way to recovery. Um, I wouldn't have survived without you. Um, Yeah, I mean, as far as learnings go, it's interesting for us to look at this. So we're like, we're up in the 450 calls a year range now. Um, And we categorize things just for our, our own info as to, you know, was this a poorly prepared party was it a poor plan did they did they not have the right equipment did they not do this did they not do that because we're seeing a lot of that you know the 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 poor footwear is a classic that's causing us all kinds of grief with broken legs and so on but in this case i think it was what we categorize as a as a true accident you know as an experienced party with all the right equipment all the right gear uh all the right um uh, stuff with them to make the day and make good decisions and then something still went wrong and, and really what sort of saved the day here would have been the inReach as well as the fact that the cell phone call was placed, but take that out of the picture and suddenly the inReach becomes the critical aspect. And, um, you know, we're really encouraging folks these days to travel with uh, some sort of satellite messaging device like an inReach or a spot. And, and it's probably a good idea to have a couple of them. And then I really like what Vi said uh, earlier about having a bit of an instruction sheet as to how to operate yours 
in case you are unconscious. Um, so that was really good. And um, just stepping away a bit from the learning aspects is uh, wanted to say that we really appreciated when Vi reached out to us and and said not only thanks, that's a huge, you know, a huge uh, thing to hear from people who we've gone to help in the mountains, but it was also good to just sort of get a sense of what happened with the injuries. Um, it's it's tricky now with, uh, with the medical um, information being private, of course. We often don't hear the result of our patients, um, and it's really helpful for us as first responders, not only for us learning as far as what we do first aid-wise, but also for uh, you know, our mental health and, and learning is, is getting that closure to get that closure. And like this mm-hmm. last 10 days, we've, totally. we've had five spinal injuries in the last 10 days here. And I don't know the result of any of them. Um, and that's a lot harder than what this case was because Vi was really open with what happened and, uh, and it helped. Great. Well, thanks for sharing, Jeremy. Todd, Todd do you want to leave us with, uh, with any last comments or suggestions or tips for the listeners? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't, um, I can't really speak to lessons learned uh, as far as people who are in accidents. But from from an actual flying standpoint, or from my standpoint, when you're trying to find people in the mountains, it's really important that you uh, you are dressed appropriately, and and I, and we definitely we look for a lot of people in the mountains, and and it's not as easy as you'd think um, when you're looking down from the air to find people. So it's important that people carry some type of uh, either clothing or a, a rag for that matter that's you know a bright color um, even if you could take a piece of of, of clothing and, and put it on a stick and wave the stick around uh, it's quite easy to see movement from the air as opposed to just somebody who's sitting in black with a with a black background against the scree slope so the more you can do to actually make yourself visible will just actually uh, expedite the amount of time it takes us to find you and and the amount of time it takes you to get to EMS or just to get further help. So uh, making yourself visible, even if you use a cell phone and you have a light on your cell phone, especially a flashing light, and uh, at the end of the day, if you're down in the trees, it's going to be very difficult to see you. So if you have anything like that, a a cell phone that flashes or any type of light, that's also very helpful. And and these aren't things that are very heavy and, and are easy to carry. So it's just something, some food for thought for people that are out there enjoying the mountains just to to make yourself visible would be great. Well, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Vi and thank Diane you. and Todd and Jeremy for being on the show. This is pretty cool. And um, Vi, I'm really happy to hear that you you've recovered. And um, what a what a lucky angel you are. <laughs> mm-hmm. That um, is that is very, very true. true. And, yeah. Uh, and if oh I oh my gosh. If I hadn't had a helicopter, I couldn't imagine somebody carrying me. I'm sure I would have had a spinal injury or death happen if somebody had to carry me out. Thanks to Vi, Diane, Jeremy, and Todd for being on the show. Thank you to Garmin, Rocky Talkie, Desert Mount Medicine, and the American Alpine Club for supporting my passion project. Many guests have told me that better communication could have helped prevent their accidents, so I was stoked when Rocky Talkie reached out to the Sharp End to support the show and all of you. Rocky Talkies are backcountry radios designed by two climbers from Denver. I have loved these radios, and they were especially critical for me this spring when I hurt my knee splitboarding on Thompson Pass just outside of Valdez in my home state of Alaska. 
I was able to radio down and get help from my ski partner. These radios are extremely lightweight, durable, and more affordable than any other backcountry radio on the market. Rocky Talkie also donates $2 per radio to volunteer search and rescue teams around the country. If you need a radio, check these out and make sure to use code SHARPEND at rockytalkie.com for 10% off their radios. Your purchase will also support this show. On this episode, the American Alpine Club wants to give away a free partner-level AAC membership. To enter to win, find this episode post on the SharpEnd Instagram and tag two friends that you know will love the show. Your two friends have to be following the account to win. We'll do the drawing on July 15th. Good luck. Introducing Membership 2.0 from the American Alpine Club. Climbing is inherently risky, but with the enhanced rescue benefits of Membership 2.0, you can tie in a little easier knowing the American Alpine Club is on belay. Say you're climbing and the situation goes south. The newly enhanced rescue and medical expense coverage of Membership 2.0 will get you back to the trailhead, to the nearest hospital, and then pay your insurance deductible or direct medical expenses once you're there. But what if you are unable to phone in the accident yourself and it's not the AAC who organizes the rescue? They've also created a reimbursement request process to ensure you're not left holding the bill. Learn more at AmericanAlpineClub.org. Desert Mountain Medicine, innovative wilderness medicine training since 1998. DMM offers all women's courses through the Women's Wild Med Program. Wilderness medicine courses for women taught by women. DMM welcomes all women and girls, transgender and cisgender, as well as non-binary people who identify with the women's community to join the hybrid WFR in July in Leadville, Colorado, or October in Indian Creek, Utah. For a 10% discount, use code SHARPWOMEN. Visit DesertMountainMedicine.com for a full list of courses. Are you ready? Do you want to show your love of the Sharp End Podcast? Follow the Sharp End Podcast on Instagram or Facebook leave a review on iTunes, or become a Patreon subscriber. And as always, remember, play hard and be smart.